So this week we're going to talk about what is creation in the Bible. And we're going to discuss different views, different theories, but ultimately what the Bible says. But before we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that you teach us what you want us to know and what we don't need to know, you don't teach us. And help us to be okay with that, God, that there are mysteries even in understanding your creation. But it is undoubtedly you that created this universe. And so I just pray that during this time of learning about creation, it would give us greater awe to you and it would help us to worship you, that not only the rocks would cry out, but we would cry out and worship to you. In your name we pray, amen. The doctrine of creation is the idea of saying that God created the entire universe out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing and all of it was very good. And the reason he created it was to glorify himself. So when you think about creation, you need to think about how God created this to glorify himself. And I wanted to begin by reading Psalm 8, which is actually a song about creation. And here is what Psalm 8 says. It says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You might see here that in verses 5 and 6, when it talks about how God made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor, honor and made him ruler over the works of our hands. This is modeling Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where we're made in God's image and we're called to subdue the earth. So he's bringing this up again in this psalm, going back to who we are. We are made in God's image and we're called to subdue the earth. If you have your Bibles, you can look now at Psalm 19. This is another psalm about creation. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 4. But here's what Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. This is saying creation itself communicates knowledge. Creation itself is speaking, right? But then it says there is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. So we can see that even creation just declares who God is. 
And then Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, says this. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, by his mouth, right? And all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers up the waters of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. This is our God. This is where we see creation being affirmed of what he did in Genesis 1. So first we have to agree and believe that God created everything out of nothing. The Latin word is ex nihilio. Ex nihilo, which means nothing but God existed before the universe was created. There was just God, right? The Trinity. But there was the Trinity before the universe was created. And this is because there is no matter in the universe that is eternal. Nothing that is created, matter as we know it, is not eternal. So it did not exist beforehand. So if matter existed apart from God, then what inherent right would God have to rule over it and use it for his glory? He had to be the creator in order to rule over it and be glorified from it. And if some parts of it were not created by him, then what confidence could we have that every aspect of the universe will ultimately fulfill God's purposes. Every part of creation fulfills God's purposes because he was the one that created it. Even though he gave us the ability to create as well, he allows us to create. And that is also for his glory. Genesis 1.1 says he made the heavens and the earth. And this is called in circles intelligent design. The earth had to be designed by something intelligent versus just randomness, right? It was not done by random chance. There is an intelligent design to the universe. We mentioned last week that God the Father initiated the act of creation. God the Son carried it out the directions of the Father, and he's the one that created it, and then the Holy Spirit gave life to God's creation. He breathed life. We learned that even the idea of breath is also the idea of the Holy Spirit. Job 33, 4 says this, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the Hebrew word for that is ruach, and it means spirit, breath, or wind, ruach in Hebrew. And so we know that the Spirit is the one that gives us breath. Psalm 104, verse 30 says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. So the spirit is very much active in bringing life into what is being created, which is interesting because what happens when we die? When we take our last breath, where does our spirit go? It leaves our body and goes up to be with the Lord. Isn't that right? And so that's very interesting that the Holy Spirit is no longer in our dead body, but our spirit along with the Holy Spirit goes to heaven when we have our last breath. It's amazing the parallel there, right? Ultimately, a proper understanding of what science teaches us about the earth and about creation cannot contradict 
what the scripture says. There's not going to be a conflict. So we need to try to reconcile what are we learning in science about creation and what are we learning in the Bible and find out how can they be reconciled together. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Colossians 1.16 says this, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, like the spiritual realm, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created through Christ and for him. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith, Ooh, we need to have faith to understand this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Nothing that was made was made out of something visible. It was all made by the word of God, right? And we read that also in Psalms this morning. Romans 1.17 says that he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Calls, again, it's his words, it's his commands that create. God spoke all of creation into existence except for one thing. The one thing he didn't create out of his mouth was mankind. Adam, he used his hands. Genesis 2, 7 and 22 confirm this. He was made out of the dust of the earth, right? So he wasn't just spoken into being, nor was Eve just spoken into being. She was made out of man's rib, right? So even we are created by God, according to Psalm 139, 13. It says, he knit you in your mother's womb. Obviously, Adam and Eve weren't knit, but the rest of us were in our mother's womb. And when you think about being knit, that means you're, you're being weaved. Knitting takes hands. Everything that is weaved or knitted has a purpose, and it is lovingly done by its creator. So we need to remember that every child is lovingly created by God and has a purpose. So how does that make you feel to know you are lovingly created by his hands for a purpose? There is a purpose. Help us to know what it is, Lord right? I'm special and I was created for a purpose. What is it? We want to keep saying to that to the people around us, you're special and you were created for a purpose because so few people believe that. A lot of people don't believe that outside the church, but there are a lot of people questioning that inside the church. And God wants us to believe that because then we will live the most fulfilling life when we are following him and walking with him and believing we are special with a purpose. So we were made in God's image. What does that mean? What does this mean of made in God's image? Now at seminary, I had to read a really thick book on made in God's image, and I'm going to succinct it to like a paragraph, okay? But we are the only ones made in God's image in all of creation, okay? We know that from Genesis 1:27. Not even the angels were created in God's image. So that is significant. The challenge is, is that when sin entered the world, God's image was distorted. And it's important you think of it as distorted and not lost. It's not like, oh, now we are no longer the image of God. It is fully destroyed. No, it is distorted. So we live in a distorted image of how God wants us to be like him. Yeah, how are we like God? Okay. Because of Christ, we can now have a progressive recovery of our image, right? When we put our faith in Christ, that is the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy and more righteous. And so that is 
helping us to regain more of an image of God in our life. So hopefully I am representing Christ more today than I was a year ago, right? Because my image is being restored piece by piece into God's image. So how are we like God in ways that other created things are not? One of the most important ones is we have a moral aspect about ourselves. Even animals do not have a moral aspect. They will be trained, oh, be a good dog, oh, that was being bad, right? But they don't have a morality about them as animals. And so we are the, we are the only created thing that has a morality about us. Because we have a morality, we have to be holy. He says, you are to be holy like I am holy. There's an expectation there. We are both spiritual beings. We have a spirit inside of us and God is spirit. Again, animals do not have a spirit, okay? So there's not a spiritual component to other parts of creation. This spirit helps us know and engage with God right? Like, like an animal can't know God, can't worship God, can't engage with God. Only we can. Only humans can have that type of relationship with God. God didn't die for angels. God didn't die for our animals. God died for humans, right? Because we have a spirit. We are like God mentally and that we can reason and think logically, especially, for example, our abstract language. So we do see in certain animals that they can communicate and do certain things, but not to the level of human beings. And also we have a, a deeper relational aspect. We are the most relational thing in creation as we relate to one another, as we relate in community. And, and so this is very much how we reflect God as well. Now, people could not be made from an evolutionary process if you believe 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. Okay, this is to combat the idea of evolution, where it says this, Paul is saying this, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He was affirming the Genesis account of how the woman was made, how Eve was made, right? It says man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So we did not just evolve from some sort of other form of creation. Nothing but God can ultimately rule over what he's made. But yet, like we saw in that psalm I read to you, part of our mandate is to rule over creation, to subdue the land and the animals. And this is because we're made in God's image. No other part of creation is told, oversee the land, oversee the animals, and take care of it. So another aspect of creation is God is not a distant creator, but he is intimately involved in his creation. He is not distant. He is what's called transcendent. Transcendent means far above his creation, but that doesn't mean far away. What that means is he is greater and independent of his creation. That's important. God is independent, not dependent on his creation. He doesn't need us. He didn't need to create us. He is totally independent of creation. So the technical term to speak of God's involvement in creation is the word imminent. Imminent means remaining in creation. So God transcends, meaning he's independent of creation, but yet he's imminent in that he chooses to remain with creation. He's still near us. He's still around us. He's still involved with us. Acts 17, 28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. So this is him being imminent, remaining in creation. Now, there are wrong views 
of how we view the earth. And I want to talk through a few of them. The first one is materialism. Materialism is not just, oh, I want to buy a lot of things, <laughs> right? Oh, I, I love shopping. Materialism is the belief that the material universe is all that there is. So pretty much there is no heaven, there is only earth, and there is no God. That's all we have is this earth. That's materialism. The next one is pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that everything, the whole universe, is God or a part of God. It's a little dangerous. So this would eliminate God from having a unique personality because think of this, the universe keeps changing. Things keep changing. That would mean God would be changing too. So God is not in his creation as in God is that tree or God is that rock or God is that mountain because that mountain's going to change over time, right? It just was at the Grand Canyon. That changed over time. God cannot change over time. So he's not in everything that's created. So that's what pantheism would believe. Also, you have to think of it. God would no longer be holy if you were a pantheist because the evil in the universe would also be a part of God. <gasps> We don't want that, right? So he, we can't believe in pantheism. Pantheism destroys the personal identity of humans as well. We are no longer our own identity. The next one is called dualism. This one gets a little tricky and you might realize, oh, I've actually maybe thought about believing this idea without knowing it sometimes. It's the idea that both God and the material universe have eternally existed side by side. The two ultimate forces in the universe are God and matter. And it make it feel like, oh my gosh, the evil has to equally fight God versus God is over it. God is sovereign. God is authoritative over everything he's created. So it's not God is equal to the matter that he created. This would create a major conflict between God and the evil aspects of the material universe. It denies God's ultimate lordship and that creation came about by God's will and for his purposes. So he is not equal to what he created. And we need to remember that he is sovereign and over it. An example of a dualistic religion is New Age. New Age really values like the earth. And they would say they almost worship, right? The earth, crystals, things like that. And so that would be more of a dualistic religion. The next one is deism. Deism is the view that God is not directly involved in creation. They actually deny God's presence in the world. That's not in the word either. So the next thing we want to think about is, well, why did God create the universe? Why did he do that? And the ultimate answer is God deserves glory and he created it for his glory. When I was at the Grand Canyon, we were driving and there was this elk. I mean, the antlers on this elk were so amazing. He was right there by the road and I just got teary-eyed. I'm like, why am I teary-eyed? Because of an elk, you know? Or when I was at Arizona and the bears were right there, I got teary-eyed again. And it was this idea of God wants glory for his amazing creation, you know? And so that is why he created the universe, to show his greatness, to demonstrate his excellence, and to delight in his work. Creation is dependent on him. Therefore, nothing in creation is worthy of the affection that God deserves. All of creation was made to give God glory. I hate to say this, but even the scorpion and the mosquito, and I hate mosquitoes. <laughs> I don't like scorpions that much either, but man, those mosquitoes like my blood. But he made them too. I don't know why, right? Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God will things into existence. And I just think that's amazing. How did he do that? <laughs> Only God can, right? We can't do that. We can't just will things into existence. We can't speak things into existence. How did he do that? Well, Jeremiah 10, 12 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And we know that the word says his ways are higher than our ways, right? So as we get into talking about actually the creation story, we need to remember this verse I just read that it was established by his wisdom and by his understanding. We don't have his wisdom and we don't have his understanding. So we're not going to fully get it, even with the Bible that we have. But one thing we are sure of is he said that all of his creation is good. And even though we are living in a fallen state, he still says that all of his creation is good. It is still good. And we are to delight in creation and see it as good. Now, the next part of our discussion I want to get into is something that has been a discussion between Christians and non-Christians, but it no longer needs to be divisive. And we're going to talk about what is the age of the earth. You may or may not care. It is not essential for your salvation. It should never split churches. It should never divide families or friends, okay? You can be on either side of this discussion and totally be respected as a follower of Jesus, okay? So we're going to talk about how do people interpret the age of the earth as Christians and with scientific knowledge as well as with the Bible, okay? This is one of the reasons you're going to like that it's on podcast because not all of it might make sense the first time. Here is something intriguing to consider because I was definitely raised in churches where it was young earth, right? Young earth, young earth, young earth. So it's interesting as time has gone on and as science has gone on, we have to believe there's no contradiction with science in the Bible. So we're going to talk about, well, what is the mysteries then at the beginning of Genesis? And then we just leave it up to, okay, the rest is God's going to reveal it to us. But here's what's interesting. No evangelical scholar, I didn't say liberal scholar or secular scholar. I said evangelical scholar, okay? No evangelical scholar today would hold that the world was created 4,000 years ago before Christ. They're not saying, oh, the earth is only 4,000 or so years old. Creation of the universe is unlike other scientific questions. Why? Because creation is not something we can repeat in a lab, right? We can't recreate the beginning. And so this is a challenge for scientists and for us. No human observed it. So we can't say we observed it. We have it documented because God gave us documentation, but no other human observed it. So here are some possible suggestions. And all of these, there is room for disagreement among Christians. One possibility is that God created what's called a grown-up universe. Everything was already mature when he created it. That's one idea. So it, it wasn't like, oh, look, the trees are just growing. And oh, like, does that make sense? It was everything was already mature. Another idea. There's a possibility of a break between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. So literally the first two verses of the Bible, some people think there's a break in time. Though, Dr. Grudem in his book would say this is highly unlikely because they claim that God might have made an earlier creation and then there was a rebellion against God and God judged the earth and it became without form or void. 
So they might say that in between those two verses might have been the stuff with Satan or the fallen angels or something. And so then another universe was created. And they claim that Genesis 1-3 to 2-3 is a second creation of God. Because if you read Genesis 1 and then 2, it's like the story again. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but it's like he shares the story of creation and then he shares the story of creation again. So some people are like, well, was that a second creation? Probably not. That's a very minor view. But they claim that the ancient fossils on earth can stem from that first creation. Okay, so that's a theory. Some people say there's a break between Genesis 1-2 and 1-3. Okay, the first one was 1-1 and 1-2. Some are saying it's between 1-2 and 1-3. Now, another possibility is a long day of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was a long day, not a 24-hour period. There's another possibility that the flood affected geological data. A lot of people hold that. They say, oh, well, the flood messed things up and made stuff look older than it really was. Okay, and that's where we get all these fossils and stuff. Their use of the word kinds in Genesis 1 could be quite broad. So God made this kind of animal and this kind of animal. So we could just say it was a very broad kind. And that's why we didn't need evolution, but there were just many more kinds than was documented. There's a possibility of the death of animals before the fall. Never heard of that before. But some people say death could have been true to animals, but not to humans. We can't know whether God created animals subject to aging and death from the beginning, but it could be a possibility. Another one is where the Hebrew word bara is not used, there's a possibility of a sequence from previously existing things. This existed, bara, bara, more things are being created. But what we really want to talk about is old earth theory and young earth theory. What do people say about these theories? Why do they come to believe it? And it'll help you assess or at least be able to communicate at your Thanksgiving table what you've learned about these two things. Okay. So the old earth theory. The old earth theory, as I walked around the Grand Canyon this week and every few steps told me how many more billions of years old the earth is, says that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Okay, that is a majority view in the world that the earth is 4.5 billion, can't even fathom, years old. Now, there are gaps in genealogies in the Bible that could create more time for us than a short earth theory. We don't know exactly how many gaps or generations are missing, and it could be too far-fetched to think millions of years have been omitted in the biblical genealogies. But archaeologists show human beings on Earth through archaeological discoveries between 35,000 to 40,000 years ago. Now, that's not 4.5 billion, but that's a little bit longer than 4,000 years, okay? So that might be more of a compromise of saying, oh, okay, maybe we've been here 40,000 years. This is a more possible suggestion with the gaps of genealogies in the book of Genesis. In the view of thinking that six days of creation are not literal six days, it is because of this Hebrew word for day, and the Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M. This word yom is sometimes referred to not a 24-hour literal day, but it's referred to a longer period of time when this Hebrew word yom is mentioned. And so this word yom in Genesis 2, 4 says this, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day, right? But that word's yom. 
which refers to God's entire work, creative work of creation, right? So right there we see he didn't make heaven and earth all in one day. It was at least six days, right? So we're seeing how already they're using this word yom to mean more than one 24-hour period, even in Genesis 2. Another argument is that the six days include so many events that it must have been longer than 24 hours. I mean, just the sixth day alone, if you were to document the sixth day alone, it included making all the animals as well as man and woman. All of that happened on the sixth day. And it was also the sixth day that he told them to be fruitful and multiply, so they got their mandate. And Adam also would have been lonely on the same day he was created in order for Eve to then be created. As you see, that's a lot of narrative to happen in a 24-hour time. The animals are created. He's naming the animals. All of a sudden, he's lonely. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know if I get lonely in one day, you know, <laughs> especially with all that work to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so it is an interesting thought. Was that literally a one-day period of time? It could have meant more a period of time. Genesis 1.5 says this, And there was evening and morning the first day. But think about this. The first three creative days could not have been marked by evening and morning because the sun was not shining on the earth yet because the sun was not created till the fourth day. So there was not evening and morning the first three days because the sun was not there to create an evening or morning. That's interesting, right? When you think about the order. That's Genesis 1, 14 and 19. So evening and morning in this chapter does not refer to an ordinary evening and morning of days that we know now. The third day couldn't be very long because the sun wasn't there until the fourth day, but guess what was made on the third day? Plants. And plants need sun to stay alive. So that's interesting. Like day three to day four had to be kind of short. But day six might have been really long. You see how it gets a little complicated when you really think about what was created and the order it was created in. No one is saying, well, they got the order messed up. No one's saying that. So we're trying to figure out and understand creation in the order that God presented it because he actually presented it twice, Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. So that order is set, which makes us ponder these things. God says one day is like, what, a thousand years. He says that in 2 Peter 3.8. Or he says that a thousand years is like one day. That's the same word, yom. So that's interesting, right? Because God himself used that word to make a day be longer than a 24-hour period. Now, there are multiple types of evidence that seem to indicate that the earth is billions of years old. Christians would say maybe 13.8 billion years old is the universe, and then the actual earth is 4.5. So the universe, God could have created even before the earth, when we're starting to study what's out there in the universe. So Dr. Grudem in his book says that the past 25 years has really been where evidence has come out, which is interesting because I learned about young earth when I was in high school, and that was more than 25 years ago, right? So it's interesting. When have we studied this recently? But in the past 25 years, evidence for an old earth has become stronger. For example, and he goes so into it in the book, it's like he was trying to teach it in class. I'm like, okay, my brain doesn't work that way. But he said starlight from billions of years ago, the age of white dwarfs, 
the ice layers, the coral reef layers, sediment layers at the bottom of lakes, and radiometric dating of rocks are all showing that there is an older Earth. And he said this, no scientist has been persuaded of a young Earth by scientific evidence alone. We can't prove a young Earth by scientific evidence. You can still be a creationist and believe in an old Earth. We are not saying evolution to believe in an old Earth. That's important. If the earth is millions of years old, I liked this point, it would remind us even more of God's eternity, right? If the earth really is that old, doesn't it help us even fathom more how eternal God is? If the universe is 14 billion, but the earth is 4 billion, and how he just took his time because there was no time until he created it, right? I mean, so that, that was really intriguing to me, that if the earth is that old, it would remind us of God's eternity. I think that's great. Now, young earth theory. Those that believe young earth theory believe that the earth is between 10,000 and 20,000 years old. This view would need to claim that secular scientific data schemes are all incorrect. Everything we're learning in science is just wrong in order to hold a young earth view today, at least in the past 25 years. Since literal days can be supported by the Ten Commandments, this is where they're going to get six literal days. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day. So six days you shall labor, but the seventh day you rest. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. So they're taking what's being said in Exodus and saying, so it was a literal six days. That's where they're getting their evidence, right? If you believe in a six-day earth. Certainly, it's being compared to the Sabbath, which is a literal day. God is powerful enough to create the whole world in an instant, right? With one word, he could create it all. So he could have created the universe in six days. But we just have to look at, look at that flow of how it was created and how does that all work out, especially on that sixth day. So we just need to remember both options are valid options for Christians today. And the Bible does not seem to intend to tell us the exact age of the earth. It's not telling us. Here is when the earth was created. So it's not so important. We need to hold a strong stance on it. Okay, let's not argue amongst ourselves or others about this or cause division because the Bible is silent on when the earth was created. Just that it was. <laughs> Ultimately, we need to cling to Hebrews 11.3. And it says this, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's all we really have to know. By faith, it was created by the word of God. That's what we do need to agree on as followers of Jesus, because there is a difference between that and secular theory. So what's secular theory? This followers of Jesus should probably not believe in. This is a theory of the origin of the universe and the origin of life that does not see a personal God as responsible for creating the universe. So there is no intelligent design. God is not a part of it. This is the Big Bang theory idea, secular theory. So modern Darwinism evolutionary theory, the modern one, states that the history of the development of life began when a mix of chemicals present on the earth spontaneously produced a very simple one-celled life form. So somehow chemicals created a one-cell, one-cell life form. This is what they're saying now. Here's the problem, that creating one protein fold would be one chance in 10 to the 37th. 
I mean, I don't even know what that number is, 10 to the 37th of zeros, right? You'd need many new proteins to just build one new animal. So how would that even happen? The chance of this happening thousands of times is pretty much zero. Also, think about actual mutations that happen in animals or creation. They're rare, and most mutations are normally not beneficial. They're destructive. They destroy the animal, shorten the life, um, are not helpful. So we don't see mutations as being profitable or better. Chemistry acting on its own simply does not do what it would need to do to generate the biological relevant macromolecules, let alone the complex nanosystems in a living cell. Also, in the past 160 years of intense archaeological activity, they have still failed to produce these needed transitional types. So archaeology cannot find transitional artifacts, right? Fossils, bones, anything like that. There's no evidence of this anywhere in 160 years of archaeology. So even scientists, think of this, if in the far future they could produce a living organism, like we figured out how to do it, we become little gods and figure it out, it would actually just strengthen the argument that it is needing an intelligent designer, the scientist, right, to create that new life form, <laughs> that it didn't happen by chance. So if one believes in evolution, there is no supreme judge that holds us morally accountable. This is the danger. Evolutionists, if they don't believe in God, there is no moral concept, there's no moral accountability, there's no moral absolutes in life, and that's a problem. So some people say, well, let's believe in theistic evolution or evolutionary creation. Now, this is what maybe some liberal theologians might believe. And they advocate belief in God and in evolution. They're compromising. They believe God created matter, but after that did not guide or intervene or act directly to cause anything that affected this matter and change it over time. Um, so everything that changed was just a natural process. God was not involved. So the problem is that this view confuses the Bible's teaching about God's action in creating the world and about God being involved and sustaining the world. So we can't believe that God just started it and then left it to be on its own. Theistic evolutionists also don't believe we came from Adam and Eve. So that's a problem. They deny 12 events that are recorded in Genesis 1 through 3. So they're pretty much saying that the creation narrative is false. It's a fairy tale. It's not real. It is not a historical document. They actually claim Adam and Eve were not the first humans, and maybe they didn't even exist. Well, that's a problem. The reason they say that is they think about Cain, their son, Adam and Eve had Cain, and Cain had to have a wife, and the wife had to come from somewhere, and Cain expected that other people were going to kill him. Well, who were those other people? And then it says that Cain built a big city. Well, where did all these people for the big city come from? So they're like, it doesn't make sense. Adam and Eve couldn't be the first people. But the reality is, do you know how long Adam actually lived? He lived 930 years. You can have a whole lot of babies in 930 years. <laughs> you can create your own city, your own kingdom, right? And he had other sons and daughters, it says. It is important for us as followers of Jesus and followers of the Bible to not deny Genesis 1 through 3. It is a historical narrative. It's history. It is real and we need to believe it. If this is not believed, then we will remove the historical foundation on which the rest of the Bible rests. It's not an allegory. 
There are genealogies in later chapters, and it ties everyone back to Adam and that he was a real person. And so it's being acknowledged even in the genealogies. So theistic evolution undermines not only the historical trustworthiness of Genesis, but 10 books in the New Testament. If you believe this, you're denying 10 books in the New Testament because 10 of these books affirm the historicity of the events in Genesis 1 through 3. 10 books of the New Testament say Genesis 1 through 3 really happened. An example would be 1 Corinthians 15, 47. It says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Well, that's documenting that it really happened. But theistic evolutionists take away the biblical view and they say that things have been made by God's eternal power and divine nature, but then they just leave it alone. They don't believe in the actual story. They say living creatures can be explained solely from the properties of matter itself. While the Bible says that everything in nature bears witness to God, theistic evolution says no living creature in nature bears witness to God. That's really sad because we know that God made creation for what? His glory. They undermine the truthfulness of the Bible, the goodness of God, the moral justice of God, the atonement and the resurrection. And so that's a problem. So we can't say to people, yes, you can believe in God and believe in evolution. Does that make sense? There's a lot of contradictions to it. If they actually believe in the Bible, right? It's more like, do you believe in the Bible? Because if you believe in the Bible, you can't believe in evolution. So how should we think about and relate to his creation? Well, we are to joyfully use the earth that God's given us. He's given us these resources and we are to use them. And we are to seek how to develop the earth and develop the land in a way that brings glory and honor to God. One thing that I love that Dr. Grudem brings up in another book of his is that God would not give us natural resources for us to use and not make enough of them for us to live off of. He's going to give us oil and water. We're not running out of water. We're just not allowed to put certain factories in California to take the salt water that's out of that big ocean and make it water that we can drink. We know how to make water out of salt water, right? We're not running out of water. We're not running out of oil. God would not make an earth when he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Oh, stop being fruitful and multiplying. I didn't make you enough resources. <laughs> I mean, that's not the God we have. But we do need to be wise stewards of it. We don't want to waste his resources. We don't want to throw it out. We do need to care about the earth. We need to take good care of it. But we also do not need to fear that God did not give us enough resources to sustain the people that he wants us to be created in his image. He wants image bearers. He wants us to be fruitful and multiply. And he will provide what we need to live on this earth. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are beyond our comprehension that our bodies are beyond our comprehension, let alone all of creation, all the species of animals, all to bring you glory, all to bring you praise. And Lord, we don't need to know how old this earth is. What we need to know is that you are the creator and that we get to live eternity with you. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth without sin. How much more beautiful will that be? How much more vibrant will the colors be to see the lion sitting with the lamb? Lord, I can't wait. And so even though we see dimly now, we know that one day we will see fully and we will understand. You will get to share with us yourself how you made creation and how did it really play out. 
and we will hear the story over and over again and be enamored by how you created this expanse universe and this little tiny earth that we call home. And so may we leave here not confused or frustrated, but Lord, may we leave here knowing you are a powerful, great, eternal God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.